こんにちは、みなさん。ビジネスサクセスジャパンのポッドキャストへようこそ。Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast.This is your host, Liddy Bukelman.My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business.While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shifted mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. I wanted to go over a little bit of housekeeping before getting into today's episode. You may have noticed that there was no episode published last week. Since this is still a solo project, I've decided to switch the publishing schedule to once every two weeks in order to make it more sustainable, rather than doing 10 episode seasons followed by a month's break like I did between seasons one and two. I have, however, finally invested in a microphone I can use while recording interviews, so hopefully my audio quality in this episode and going forward will be noticeably better. Again, thank you for your patience in that arena as well. Today, I'm interviewing Anne Hogart, who has taught both English and Japanese to students of all ages. She has worked at a Japanese auto parts manufacturer and a Japanese English translation company in Michigan and served as a consultant and trainer for US based Japanese businesses. As a professor of education, dean of the Graduate College at Siena Heights University, and board president at Hinoki International School. She currently works for the Consulate General of Japan in Detroit and teaches Japanese for Lansing Community College and Mott Community College in Flint. And she is active in cross cultural activities of the Japan America Society, Hinoki Foundation, and other volunteer organizations. But before we get into our conversation, let's quickly go over some Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the phrase, Dozo, Do, U, Zo, Dozo. This is a pretty versatile phrase, meaning anything from go ahead to please help yourself. Today, we'll learn a phrase that can mean either I don't know or I don't understand, which will more likely than not come in handy at least a few times while you're in the country. Wakarimasen. 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 So, for example, if someone said something to you in Japanese that you didn't quite understand, you can add the word sumimasen, which is sorry or excuse me, to say the phrase sorry, I don't understand. Sumimasen, wakarimasen. All right, so without any more delay, let's get into today's conversation. Would you mind introducing yourself to my audience to begin? Hello, yes, my name is Anne Hogart. I am a student of Japanese for the past 35 years plus. And I first went to Japan as a 16 year old exchange student. I spent seven weeks in Yokohama with a host family, and it basically changed my life. I decided at that point to study Japanese, ended up going to the University of Michigan, which was one of the only places in Michigan that you could study Japanese at the time. Now, fortunately, that is much different. And、uh, what I do is I currently work as a Japanese teacher online for a couple different、uh, community colleges in Michigan. And I also serve as senior cultural public relations specialist for the Consulate General of Japan in Detroit. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So you said that you went there first when you were 16 years old. What was that for? That's correct. I was very fortunate. I lived up in very rural Manistee County, uh, where my father had retired. Uh, he had kids very late in life. And so um, I wanted to go anywhere besides my rural, uh, very small uh, high school. And I saw a, a poster in the hallway for an opportunity to apply for a scholarship through Future Homemakers of America, of which I was a member. And there was a Future Homemakers of Japan convention uh, that I could attend uh, through a Youth for Understanding program funded by Kikoman, believe it or not, the soy sauce maker, which has factories in uh, Wisconsin. And so fortunately, at age 16, I applied, I received the scholarship, and I was able to go on a summer exchange program uh, through Youth for Understanding, which, of course, is uh, started, it was begun in uh, Ann Arbor, as a lot of people don't know, right after World War II, to foster uh, good relationships between countries and world peace. So then, mm -hmm. how did you decide to go into teaching and then working at the consulate as well? Right, so uh, at my age, you've done a lot of things. Uh, I should roll back to what I thought I would want to do uh, as a young person. When I was 16, and even as I went into college, I, I toyed with the idea of being a teacher, but I thought, no, 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 I'll, I'll never want to be a teacher. Uh, it's not exciting. It's not sexy. You don't make a lot of money. Who would want to do that? And so I actively avoided being a teacher. Um, and then I decided, of course, at the time, this was the 1980s, and that was the, it was called the Nihongo boom. So many people were studying Japanese. Japan was kind of the new exciting market. Uh, there were opportunities in business. Uh, if you could only understand that very complicated language and culture, uh, perhaps you could uh, you know, tap into some excellent business opportunities. So I thought I would go to college and become an international business major, uh, which of course uh, uh, did not happen. Ultimately, uh, I, I became a Japanese studies major, but, but after going to Japan uh, upon graduation, I spent a year uh, in Japan on the JET program, the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, which had just begun. It was about three years old when I went. And uh, on that program, of course, you have to teach English, but I thought it was just a stepping stone and you know, it was a means to an end. I just wanted to return to Japan. And so I was fortunate to be sent to Michigan sister state of Shiga, uh, which I didn't even know we had a sister state at the time. Uh, now I'm very well acquainted with it and uh, we've had over a 50 year relationship and I'm very proud to be involved in it. But uh, in any case, I was sent to a rather rural place in uh, Nagahama uh, in Shiga prefecture and was uh, very fortunate to work with a gifted uh, English teacher uh, at a junior high school and she was amazing to work with and I learned so much from her but I never ever thought I'd want to be a teacher but I just uh, now look back and think oh I learned so much from from working with her and so uh, when I returned to the U.S. again I had that business idea I only spent a year on the JET program uh, you could have done more you know I think you could go up to three years back then now it's it's longer but uh, but I did not renew because I was eager to come back and get into this exciting world of international business, right? And so I moved back to Michigan and uh, I got a job actually at Western Michigan University teaching Japanese. I only had 
uh, a bachelor's degree, but at the time, remember, it was called Nihongo Boom. Everybody wanted to study it. There weren't enough teachers. There weren't enough people who had uh, degrees in it. And so I was given one class at Western, and uh, they said to me, uh, again, this is kind of typically uh, Japanese culture, uh, the Japanese folks at Western, uh, including the late uh, Michitoshi Soga, who was a physics professor there, uh, he said, uh, well, you can't make a living on what we can pay you to you know, teach one class. So I've arranged with some friends in Battle Creek, a nearby town, Mizzou, right, uh, where there were about a dozen uh, Japanese transplant companies. I've arranged with a friend to hire you part-time to work at this Japanese uh, auto parts plant. Uh, you can be there. Um, let's see, what was it? At first, I was supposed to be assistant to the president. And then later I got moved into uh, human resources. And eventually, of course, uh, as part of that, I started teaching English to the Japanese executives and Japanese to the American workers. Uh, so once again, every time in my career, teaching just kept coming up. And so uh, that brought me to working in a Japanese automotive company for about a year and a half. And I also started working with some uh, other of the Japanese transplant companies in Battle Creek. I started doing some consulting. I would teach Japanese business culture to the Americans, and I even was hired to teach in Japanese to Japanese executives at various companies about American business culture. And so it became very much this, this cultural bridge, and that's why I was so interested in, in what you are doing, Lydia, trying to expand knowledge about each other's business culture, right? In this uh, kind of interface that we have going on. A lot of people don't know that Michigan now has over 500 Japanese transplant companies just in Michigan employing over 40,000 Americans. And it's the same situation in, uh, in nearby Ohio, over 500 companies employing, you know, tens of thousands of Americans. So uh, we have this interface and the more we can understand each other and work together, uh, the better it will be all the way around them. I definitely agree with that. A lot of it just comes down mm -hmm. to being aware of what to expect from the other partner, which yes. is extremely difficult when people just have a completely different set of assumptions about how things should work and how you mm -hmm. should communicate. So moving on to what we were thinking about talking about today, mm -hmm. um, would you mind explaining mm -hmm. a little bit to us what exactly is a high context culture? Ah, excellent question. So uh, one of the things that happens when we are having this, as I say, interface between uh, the Americans living in the United States and in the Midwest uh, with Japanese uh, from a, a Japanese culture, uh, we have this uh, sort of mismatch or, or lack of alignment between what is called a high context culture and a low context culture. So let me go into those kind of technical terms. I believe these terms came from uh, an anthropologist named Edward Hall. He and his wife Mildred Hall did a lot of work in Japan. His famous book is Beyond Culture, first published in 1976, republished in 1989, when again there was so much interest in uh, U.S. Japanese business. But uh, in any case, high context cultures are cultures in which there's a lot of homogeneity. People have the same language, the same ethnic background largely, uh, the same religion, um, the same overall values. It's, it's very uh, homogeneous and it's uh, easy to predict, oh, that, problem, that person probably also thinks this or wants this or will do this. 
behaviors are you know, very predictable because there's a lot of uh, similarity. Then on the other end, we have low context cultures, which include places like the US and Canada and uh, Western Europe uh, are known as uh, low context cultures. And, and the idea is that probably this came from the fact that we have a, a mixture of many different people. There are lots of different religions, lots of different languages, lots of different ethnicities all living together. And so it isn't as predictable to say, well, I think this, me, you know, people in my group or my family or my hometown would do this most of the time. I bet that person will too. That no longer works in a, in a low context culture. So when you have a very, um, as we call the US, an immigrant society, right? When you have a very diverse population, uh, it becomes low context. And so uh, let me explain a little bit more about what that means for interactions, including business interactions, in a high context culture, because you can assume and predict what the other person will think, say, want, feel, uh, decide you don't have to say as many things as specifically. There's a lot of implicit knowledge. There's a lot of, well, duh, of course he's going to want you to sit at the other end of the table or open the door for him or you know whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be explicitly stated. But in a low context culture when anything could be possible, right? Because your culture is not shared by so many of the others, you have to make things explicit. So one of the largest things is a handshake deal, which we know and, and sometimes use in the US, is, is not super um, reliable uh, in a low context culture because, oh, well, he said this and he shook your hand, but guess what? He changed his mind or uh, that no longer works or this group isn't going to accept it or whatever have you. So what do we do? We have a lot of written contracts, right? We spell everything out. It's all in the fine print. We begin with a definition of terms, all these things, very, very low context. Whereas in a high context culture, a lot of those things would be seen as sort of redundant, unnecessary, or even maybe insulting, meaning that your relationship isn't close enough to trust each other. Why do you have to spell it out? You know, a written piece of paper, what is that? Aren't you good as your word? Don't you trust the other person? And so in a high context culture like Japan, uh, businesses become more and more about relationships. It's very, very key to have a uh, trusting relationship. And we do talk about trust even in American business schools and so on. Um, but I think it's a little bit different, uh, differently perceived. And so in a high context culture, uh, there's, there's trust, there's long-term relationships and relationship building. It takes even on a, even a more important uh, role in, in successful business. Right. Thank you for that explanation. So pushing back a little bit as somebody from one of the most extremely low context cultures in the world, why can't a Japanese person just explain to me what their expectations are? Because I would do it if they just said it. Why can't they just say it then? <laughs> yes, that's a great question. And it sounds very, you know, American, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think, again, it's, it might be difficult, but we have to sort of put ourselves in their shoes. And mm -hmm. that's why, as you say, it's so good to learn about each other's culture and where you're coming from. And some people say, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so uh, as an American, you might expect that people, of course, when they want something, of course, they will spell it out. That's what we do, right? That's what people do. No, that's what people in low context cultures do. 
Right. So then we have to learn, well, okay, it came from a high context culture. Now, Japanese culture, it's been developing for over 10,000 years. You know, they've had a long time to, you know, have all these sort of assumptions and uh, built-in values and so on and so forth uh, occur. And I, I should also mention, because I didn't before, uh, Japan is not the only high context culture. Most East Asian cultures, so Korea, China, Vietnam, are also seen as uh, high context. A lot of um, cultures in the Middle East are seen as high context, and even in Latin America, certain uh, cultures are seen as high context, where there's a lot of homogeneity and people kind of know what the other person's going to do. So having to spell everything out to a person from a, a high context culture is, you know, sort of a, a pain, right? I mean, mm -hmm. why would you even have to do this? Number two, it kind of suggests, wow, this person doesn't trust me or we don't trust each other. I thought we were kind of in this together and had a good relationship, but instead I have to treat them like sort of a stranger, uh, someone from a, you know, outside my group uh, kind of thing. And so it may be unfamiliar to the Japanese person. It may be uncomfortable for the Japanese person. Mm -hmm. Again, you're asking them to do something that they haven't had a lot of practice doing because they grew up in a high context culture. And the other little uh, sidebar to that is, and they probably have to do it in their non-native language, yes. which, you know, you and I as bilingual people, we understand that uh, doing something in your native tongue can almost always be more comfortable than doing it in another uh, target language that you're trying to acquire, but you're not 100% there. So again, asking a Japanese executive, let's say, to express these, this unfamiliar uh, thing to a, a person from another culture in another language, uh, it's got to be very challenging. Mm -hmm. It just, just hearing about it sounds exhausting. I can't imagine <laughs> being put on the spot and being asked to explain the whole basis of why we do things this way. When, like you mm -hmm. said, they probably have one, haven't had to do that before. And two, mm -hmm. once they explain it to you, they're kind of almost responsible for making sure that you abide by it correctly. Like, it's almost That's, shifting the um, responsibility on them for your behavior. That's another sense. great point that I think we don't think about a lot in the U.S. Um, I have a lot of fr American friends who are surprised to think that, uh, you know, it's not uh, as common anymore in Japan, but there are still arranged marriages, at least to the extent of, oh, you know, why don't you two go on this blind date and see if it works out. The person who arranges the date is in some way, shape, or form, deemed responsible for the success of the marriage, <laughs> mm -hmm. if a marriage comes of it, you know what I'm saying? So I think Americans don't think of that, and so we wouldn't go there, but you're absolutely right. To the extent that you've specifically explained what you want and how to do it, the success or failure then somehow is your responsibility in, in a Japanese, you know, high, high context way of thinking. So, so that's, a, that's a, a great point. Yeah. So do you have any examples of some common misunderstandings that tend to stem from this big gap between especially Americans and Japanese? Well, yes, I think there are uh, several. But the one that uh, I think a lot of Americans learn quickly is that cold calling, as we uh, use in the U.S., uh, you know, all those bothersome uh, phone calls that you get, people asking for money or wanting to buy they, they continue, even though we all complain about them in the U.S., right? But mm -hmm. they continue because they must be successful on some level, right? Otherwise, people wouldn't be doing them. Um, calling a stranger and getting them to whatever, give you money, agree to some business uh, proposition, uh, 
it, ha it happens in the US and it, it, in some level it can be successful. Cold calling does not work in Japan. It's not done. Uh, it's generally uh, you know, not even thought of because wh why would you ever expect someone to purchase something from you, make an agreement with you, have a business relationship with you when they don't even know you? <laughs> so cold calling is one uh, very uh, prime example. Um, another, uh, to me, this is one of the most, I don't know, iconic examples or one of the most famous examples. Back in around uh, the same time I was in uh, Japan, and being an English teacher uh, by default, I thought, um, there was a fellow named uh, T. Boone Pickens, uh, native of Oklahoma, but uh, he's now um, passed away. I think he passed away last year. He's a very big um, financier. He was a, a hedge fund manager uh, par excellence from the Oklahoma, Texas area. And uh, he uh, got into oil and, and those kind of things. And he ended up purchasing uh, a controlling share of a place called Koito Manufacturing, which uh, actually is a supplier for Toyota, which again, that gets into the whole system of cross share holding in Japanese companies and Japanese uh, company groups. And so Toyota owned a large portion of Koito because Koito is an auto lighting manufacturer who supplies Toyota. And so Toyota owned about 19% of their shares at one point. And uh, T. Boone Pickens Company came along and bought 20%. And later on, they increased to 26%. So he owned about a billion dollars worth of their stock. And yet he felt he was not included in their decision-making to a sufficient extent, even though he was the majority shareholder. So what does T. Boone Pickens do? You know, speaking no Japanese, having very little uh, knowledge of the culture, et cetera. Uh, but uh, having bought these shares through some third party or whatever, he takes himself to Japan and says, I'm going to attend the board meeting with the, director, the board of directors of, of, of this uh, auto parts manufacturer. So he shows up and um, of course it's, it's not, um, what's the word, not as it would be expected in a high context culture, very you know, humble as the, the new guest, the unknown quantity, uh, and, and is not very reserved and, and kind of feeling his way out. He basically demanded um, a seat on their board. I, I own most of your company, uh, you know, a controlling share anyway. Um, please give me a, a seat on your board of directors. Well, of course, this throws the Japanese for a loop. And, um, you know, there's a whole series of um, reports of what occurred at the end. But, um, but believe it or not, T. Boone Pickens, who died with, with about, you know, half a billion dollars of assets, he was never successful in, in getting that, uh, that seat on the board of directors at the Japanese company. And so I think that speaks to the strength and the, um, what's it called, the, uh, the long-term uh, stability and, uh, and the unchanging uh, nature of the, this uh, very important uh, idea of business equals relationships in Japan and high-country culture. So, so I don't care if you have purchased all this stock. I don't care if you own all this and you own many other things and you are a very powerful person. You know, he tried many things. He, he put ads in Japanese newspapers. He, you know, tried to, to create some uh, public uh, opinion uh, about his, uh, his, uh, his desire to have this, uh, what he saw as his rightful uh, seat on the board. Uh, and none of it worked. So culture is so deep. Uh, I think people uh, often uh, underestimate 
how strong these cultural ideas are and how long-lasting they can be and, and difficult to change. So basically, even T. Boone Pickens couldn't, couldn't get his way, uh, which might have worked in a low-context culture, correct? A low-context culture. Hello, I've never met you before. I'm at your board of directors. And guess what? I own most of your stock. Please put me on your directorship uh, board of directors. I think could have had more chance of working, right? <laughs> right. Higher than in Japan, at least. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so the fact that even this very wealthy, powerful, experienced individual never succeeded, uh, and plus he, he still, I believe, owned the stock uh, when he passed away last year. So <laughs> uh, it took uh, you know many, many years, and he, and he never really succeeded. But uh, in any case, to me, that's like a great uh, example of how these misunderstandings can happen, right? It's common sense. He owns a, a controlling share. The, what the piper says, we do, right? And so, but that was not. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that um, is interesting to me is just that obviously if you're not from Japan, you don't have the same cultural background and you mm -hmm. can't fix that. So then mm -hmm. what's left for somebody from a completely different context to do to try to mm -hmm. not become Japanese, but kind of adapt themselves well enough to the culture to be mm -hmm. effective, to be able to build relationships that are sustainable? That's an excellent question, Lydia. Um, uh, two things come to mind. One is that whole idea of becoming Japanese. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, things I learned early on, I had just returned from you know, a marvelous time living with the Japanese family as a 16-year-old. They'd take me into their home, they'd take me to their school, they'd fed me and take me to wonderful festivals and all these great things. Uh, and then I went to the university, of Michigan studied Japanese, and one of my Japanese culture teachers, actually, uh, he lived in Japan, he'd become Buddhist, he had a Japanese girlfriend, all these things, and he said to me, uh, you will never fully uh, be Japanese, you'll never fully be accepted. You know, he had tried it and it hadn't worked. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think sometimes in our immigrant culture, right, we think, oh, you know, given enough time and enough effort and whatever, we can we can surely blend in, but that's another um, aspect of high context cultures. It isn't enough time in one lifetime to just blend in. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. there's so much uh, difference that it would just take too long. So, so what can you do? Uh, of course, you can, as you are uh, suggesting, educate yourself about the culture and try to accommodate what is in, in the high context culture. Culture. So, so try not to be T. Boone Pickens. You know, he came with his assumptions from his culture and said, well, surely you'll let me in. My goodness, you know, that will not work, <laughs> as he showed. So what can work is, uh, again, focusing on, okay, what might this Japanese person from the high context culture expect? Oh, perhaps they would like me to meet them and meet their team and talk about possibilities and synergies between our two organizations. What can I offer them? Another very important uh, piece of learning that I, I did was, uh, I think Americans, we don't think enough about in the global context, right? Japan is a country the size of California, but with much less arable land. <laughs> so people are living, you know, near the coast in, in smaller um, geographical areas with lots and lots of people. There's about half the population of the U.S. living on about 4% of U.S. land, uh, if you can imagine that. So Japan is very, very crowded and does not have a lot of natural resources. 
They do not have uh, petroleum to speak of. They do not have coal, uh, iron ore, those kind of things to any appreciable extent. So they must rely on uh, the rest of the world. And so uh, any uh, large Japanese corporation, even if it has uh, sites in the US or North America, it probably also has sites many other places around the world. So Japanese businessmen that I've worked with they've had to learn how to interact with people from China, from Korea, from Vietnam. Um, these are places where uh, many Japanese companies uh, also have uh, holdings. And then in Europe, uh, there's, there's more of that. Uh, also Canada, uh, Mexico is a very big um, place for uh, Japanese companies. Uh, and so again, we're talking about uh, not just Japanese culture versus U.S. culture. Japanese businessmen, whether they like it or not, they are having to learn how to function in probably lower context cultures in lots of different places on the globe. Uh, and so I think there's there's hope in that too. So you are not the only person or culture that, that the Japanese executive is, is interacting with. And so, yes, what can you do? I think uh, you have to think about it's not all about me. What can I do to foster this relationship with this uh, Japanese uh, company and, and its representatives? And of course, take time. That's, I think, one of the biggest things is once you get in, once you've, you know, I don't have a good analogy, but once you finally struck the deal and, and made the relationship to such a point that you trust each other enough to, to make a deal uh, and to start business together, uh, those relationships will last. That's been my experience. Uh, it's very unusual for the Japanese partner, at least, to say, eh, see you later, I found a cheaper vendor, you know, and just suddenly take off. They also see it as a relationship, right? So, I mean, think of it not so much as speed dating, but as marriage. <laughs> and so, you know, getting divorced would be a big deal. Uh, and so, as you're cultivating the, the relationship, you might think, oh, it's taking a long time, and I'm investing all this time and energy and money and so on and so forth. But the it's the long-term view. In Japanese, we call it nagame de mirukoto. Look at it with a long eye. It's almost that um, Native American saying of, think about how it will affect the seventh generation. It's not about quarterly profits. Uh, it's more about the long-term. And that's another thing we can talk about another time. But Japanese companies, they tend to measure their success, not so much in terms of how much uh, quarterly profit did we make, you know, this time around these three months or, or this year or whatever. It's how much market share do we have and how is it looking like uh, for the future? So uh, Japanese companies often talk about, you know, how much of the world market uh, do they uh, have? And so as you, as you can imagine, that's a much longer term process, right? To, oh good, we've got 15% market share and we're only little Japan, you know? And then as they move on and on and on. So as you know, you know, Toyota, biggest automaker in the world, you would have never thought that maybe in 1970, right? So. Uh, in a very short, you know, half century, they now have more market share than anybody else on the planet. It's almost unbelievable thinking about how small the country is compared to the, just the sheer population and then the economic power they have. It's just exactly. almost unbelievable. It's the third largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. Even now, even with everything going on right now. Even now, yes, even with all this, it's very amazing. So one thing I was a little bit curious about is thinking about another concept in Japanese culture of not wanting to yes. lose face, not wanting to directly say mm. no to somebody. Is there mm -hmm. anything a business person can do to avoid 
uh, trying to rush building relationships while also avoiding the issue that I've heard from other people's experiences of kind of getting the runaround where they just don't want to say no. They'll just keep hearing uh, your presentation, but they may not actually uh, be interested at all. And I've heard that yes. can be a difficulty as well. That is a great, great question. You've hit upon it in that the Japanese in their high context culture can take a hint. Yeah. <laughs> and it might be difficult for them to give a hint that a person from a low context culture will get, right? And so, and even within our culture, we have some people who can take a hint and some who can't, right? And so, mm -hmm. of course, it becomes more difficult when you have this person from a high context culture who doesn't want to offend someone, doesn't want to cow, you know, like uh, we say crush the face. We say lose face in English, but in Japanese, it's literally crush someone's face. Uh, so so by, by making them embarrassed or whatever have you. So, um, and as you, I'm sure you know, um, Japanese tend to tippy-toe around uh, foreigners, Westerners, people who are not Japanese. It is a different culture. And so they're very, very careful uh, whereas, you know, those of us from immigrant culture, we've been exposed to people from lots of different cultures and, you know, it's not such a big deal. We say, well, I'll just do my best. And, you know, if they're offended, well, I wasn't trying to offend them. You know, like that. Whereas I think the Japanese are much more um, tentative and unsure. As I say, they're working globally, right, in many of these companies, uh, but it's not everyone. <laughs> in any case, what can you do? I think one of the biggest things is take the hint. So one of the things we would teach in a Japanese uh, business culture for Americans kind of seminar is the fact that uh, the Japanese uh, partner is very unlikely to say no, right? Or the Japanese client or the person you're trying to court to be your client. They're very uh, unlikely to say a direct no, right? Direct communication is a feature of low context cultures. No means no, right? We learn that and we teach that. Uh, in Japan, what can mean no? It's difficult. I'll think about it. We'll take this into consideration. Any of those could be a no. <laughs> and so I think the way to understand that is uh, to have developed that relationship with them. You almost have to feel it. They talk about gut feeling in Japan, right? Harage is um, belly language. It means you didn't maybe hear it with your ears, but you felt it in your gut. So when he said to you, mm, that could be difficult, especially this kind of, right, scratching the back of your head and intaking air, like, that mm -hmm. means it's tough and they're probably things aren't going to move forward. And so I think then once you understand that, you you know, I think an American would tend to say, oh, but they didn't say no. That doesn't matter. The message was given. The message is no. And so then where do you go next, right? Instead of waiting for them to come down and say it uh, very, you know, very decisively, quit waiting and start addressing maybe some of their concerns or start looking elsewhere for business because yeah, there's a lot of things that mean no and maybe none of them sound like the word no. <laughs> what are some ways that they can develop that sense of just noticing things? Because in the States, you say what you're going to say, then you say what you're saying, then you say what you said again. Uh, so is there so anything we can do? Culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is there anything we can do to practice or just to that's, learn? That's a, a great, great point. So, um, what I what, one thing I did, which again, you know, I don't know if it'll work for everyone, but uh, when I was working with a lot of uh, different people doing cross cultural consulting about, you know, teaching Americans about Japanese culture, teaching Japanese about American culture, we would look at movie clips, a lot of movie clips, and so some of the ones that we 
picked, I will always remember. One of the famous scenes is from Tampopo, if you're familiar with Itami Juzo's film of the late 80s. Tampopo is a pretty well-known film in a lot of different ways, but one of the greatest scenes is the French restaurant scene. But in any case, there's a bunch of upper-level executives, top executives of a Japanese company. And remember, this is the time when Japan was just so flush with cash. You know, there were people were buying Van Goghs for $50 million and so on and so forth, right? And so in the scene, these executives are there with uh, a couple of mid-level executives and one low-level newbie young guy who has to carry all their um, suitcases, or not suitcases, briefcases and so on, right? So he's like, you know, low, low man on the total pole. And so they go to this French restaurant and lo and behold, you know, probably in Tokyo or somewhere, and lo and behold, the menu is written in French. <laughs> None of them can understand French. But because no one wants to lose face, the older executives are just looking at the menu in consternation and nobody's admitting, uh, you know, I really can't read French. I can't read this menu kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be the, you know, the top guys. And so luckily some mid-level guy, uh, he jumps in, he apparently can read some French or something. And he says, well, I'll order, you know, and he orders some kind of simple thing that, that most people would, would understand. And so everybody else, including the, the higher execs around the table, they all order the same thing. And then no one has to lose faith, right? Mm -hmm. But the waiter goes to the low man on the totem pole, and for whatever reason, he speaks fluent French, and he's been to France. And so he starts ordering this very complicated thing in French to this waiter, and he gets the fancy champagne, and it just goes on and on and on. And you can see the uh, older executives just turning red. They don't say anything, but they're looking very, very upset and their faces upset. And so, uh, in any case, I think if you watch that and start to think about, you know, why they'd be upset and, and, and what this young man was doing wrong, you know, it doesn't show him getting fired or anything, which again, that's another thing in Japan that uh, tends to be a little uh, less frequent than in the US. But um, avoiding confrontation is, is also huge in Japanese culture. So I think reading about it, watching movies, uh, either from Japan or about Japan, about it uh, are also really, really good. I'm trying to think, Amy Tan, she had that, um, oh, that book, I can't remember. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the, on the title, but Amy Tan had a, a movie one time that was based on one of her books. And it's also, uh, an interesting one. Of course, hers is Chinese culture, but it's another high-context culture. And the Chinese-American young woman, she invites her American, you know, European, Western European uh, American boyfriend over to her family's house. And it's all about, we have to eat with chopsticks. And so instead of being humble and saying, oh, I've never used chopsticks, please teach me. He's trying to be, you know, the, the brave, knowledgeable young man, and he's trying to eat with chopsticks. So anyway, so of course he makes a very poor impression with, with the parents by uh, trying to boast how well he can do this. So um, I think watching movies, maybe discussing uh, those kind of intercultural uh, interactions that you see, and then uh, reading books like uh, Edward Hall's Beyond Culture and others could be uh, a starting point. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. One or the other isn't enough because if you just watch stuff, if you're just watching um, Japanese content, you won't understand what's going on. But if you just read about it, you won't learn how to see it. So mm. doing both together is definitely more helpful. I agree. So moving on to your own experiences in Japan, mm -hmm. could you tell me a little bit about what you think the difference 
in Japan is now from the 80s because we're obviously no longer mm-hmm. in the Japan boom. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, if you ask them, kind of think that Japan is over and done with. We're moving uh-huh. on to bigger and better things, mm-hmm. that sort of mentality. So how would you describe the difference between how things are in the Japanese market right now versus how they were in the 80s? I'll be happy to do that. And sorry, Liddy, but I just thought of the name of the movie, Joy Luck Club. It's the Perfect. Joy Luck Club. That's the Amy Tan movie. Sorry, I couldn't believe I couldn't think of it. No anyway, that was also early 90s, I think. And so, yeah, excellent question. So here we are, what, 30 some years after the big Nihongo boom and the time of, oh my goodness, you know, the Japanese are encroaching on um, American business, right? Uh, I'm old enough to remember people reacting very negatively to uh, the import of uh, Japanese uh, vehicles, right? I even remember Datsuns, which I don't think we have anymore. But anyway, Toyota, Honda, so on and so forth. Now those companies, and again, I really think probably uh, it was not because of a bunch of confrontation, right? I think it's probably because of that long-term view that these companies had They've slowly but slowly, in incremental ways, increased their presence in other countries, such as the U.S. uh, and many other places, and their share of the market. So even 30, 40 years ago, thinking that uh, Toyota would have a technical center right here near my home, near Ann Arbor, they now have two technical centers right here, very close to Metro Detroit, where the Detroit Three were just, you know, the big deal for decades and decades. And they somehow uh, use a lot of the same suppliers that uh, supply the Detroit Three, and they employ Americans. When I lived in Battle Creek, the Japanese employers were some of the best employers in our whole city. They did not pay less. They actually paid more, gave great benefits, uh, of course, had high expectations. Some of my colleagues, you know, uh, if they were tardy, you know, three times in a row or whatever, that was the end of their job. Uh, and they, they thought that was, you know, too strict or what have you. But there was always somebody else in line to, to get that position. Uh, and to adhere to the rules. So the expectations were high, but also the the benefits and rewards were high. And so I think Japanese companies in North America, they've learned how to reward employees, keep them loyal, because again, it's a relationship. Hiring someone uh, is not assumed to be a part, you know, a temporary uh, setup by which we'll just spend a few years together and oh well. The Japanese very much invest in uh, training, uh, long-term training and development of employees. Uh, they call it ikusei, which is kind of a, a word like cultivation. You know, I think in the U.S. we call it uh, professional development, and that's fine. It's development, uh, sometimes staff development, but more likely training, which training sounds very much to me kind of short-term, right? Oh, you have X task, do this training, boom, you can now do the task. But the Japanese view is very much more that development of a person. I was telling some of my um, Japanese English students, students of of business English recently, that uh, Japanese people, when they introduce themselves, they'll say things like, I joined, you know, let's say Toyota, just for an example. Uh, I joined Toyota in whatever year. In the U.S., I think we tend not to say that. We will more often say, I was hired by X company in whatever year, or I've been working for X company for however many years, right? Do you see the difference? In Japan, you join a group, you join an organization, and 
hopping around to other companies, and this is slightly changing now with the changing economics and so on, we are having even mid-level executives in Japan, so they're mid-career, and they are jumping to other companies in Japan. It's not super common, but it is starting to happen uh, in a noticeable way, and so that was very, very different from the 80s and 90s, uh, where lifetime employment was seen as the ideal. Now, again, even at that time, it was only about a third of companies uh, that were large enough and stable enough to uh, offer you know something like lifetime employment and and since then we've had things like layoffs in Japan which had been unheard of but when the economy got very very challenging that those things started happening but but in general uh, your your outlook is a long-term view of I'm going to work for this for this group and with this group as a part of this group for as long as I can hopefully till retirement uh, which I don't think is uh, usually the uh, American view in our low context culture, if I see a better offer, I'm gonna jump to that better offer, right? And, and everyone's gonna say, oh, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Um, they're not going to see me as unreliable, flighty, uh, undependable, right? That kind of thing, untrustworthy. Uh, and so again, you were asking about oh, what the differences are. And so I think in the 80s, uh, like I said, it was more of a boom. And now uh, the uh, economy has been more difficult. Uh, Japan's economy has been uh, not as stagnant, I guess I should say. Uh, it sounds kind of harsh, but you know, to be in a recession for you know decades and decades is pretty stagnant. But it had been recuperating, and I don't know now in 2020 uh, we're going to see a global downturn. So um, we'll have to see what, how that affects uh, the growth. But one thing that can help uh, is Japanese companies, like I said, they tend to take a very incremental view, and that also goes to uh, something that is uh, very important to me. Uh, even unconsciously, I think I ad adopted this, but uh, when somebody asked me, what is your driving theory? You know, kind of my theory in my life, what, what do I follow? It's, it's a theory of Kaizen. Kaizen being uh, the incremental improvement. So um, it's very long-term. You only have to improve a little bit at a time. Uh, that same idea of you're gonna keep doing this for a long time, you're gonna keep moving toward the goal, even small incremental steps toward the goal are fine. Uh, there will be uh, setbacks once in a while, which again, I think in, in US, you know, uh, low context culture, you never wanna go to a, a shareholder meeting and talk about, oh yeah, we're having a little setback, you know, oh, we didn't make you any money this quarter. Uh, that's not uh, happy news. And so in Japan, I think the long-term view is, is much more helpful. So now we're talking about uh, global companies and still having that long-term view. Uh, it is not about, um, oh, let's just be very generous with uh, all this spending and just kind of uh, the bubble economy that existed in the, the late 80s and 90s. Now, uh, I think Japanese companies are much more careful about their spending and so on and so forth. But again, they definitely have a, a global view. They need to always have a global view. They're not like China where if they want to, sure, they can go dig uh, get some oil, get some iron, get some, you know, whatever's needed. They have a lot of natural resources. Japan just doesn't have that. And so they have to rely on relationships with other countries around the world to uh, fuel their economy. And, uh, and it's all built on relationships. It sounds like things have changed a lot, but they're fundamentally still in the Japan sense. So a lot has changed, but then again, not a lot has changed at the same time. I think that's a key theme of Japan, right? So many people say it. it's like the tradition is so there. There's so much change and yet the tradition continues. Yeah, it's very, very common. And do you have an example from your own life when you've had a communication breakdown in Japan due to cultural differences? 
Mm, that is a great, great question. Probably several. The one that I guess uh, comes to mind first is when I was teaching as an English teacher in Japan, a guest teacher, I, I was, of course, you know, not even 20 years old, I don't think. I had graduated from college and was living in Japan. Again, I'd had that seven-week experience, but that, that was my only experience with Japan. And, and it might be true that with the differences between high context and low context being so different, it does take a long time to actually even learn what the differences are, right? Uh, and living there is, is one quicker way to do it than just sitting here uh, in, in the U.S. learning about them through books or movies or whatever have you. But in any case, I was invited as the resident foreign person in our school to the wedding of the, I believe, science teacher. I was in a junior high school in Shiga, and uh, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, woman who was teaching science there, she was getting married, and she wanted me to go to her wedding. Now, again, it might be fashionable, right, to, and kind of cool to have someone at your wedding who looks different from everyone else and who is from another country and so on and so forth. So, of course, I accepted, right? Uh, I'd love to attend a Japanese wedding and see what they're like. So I wore my best suit, um, my best suit, uh, my best outfit that I brought from the U.S. Uh, happened to be bright red. <laughs> it was a solid red, I think kind of short blazer and skirt, uh, knee length skirt. And I thought, great, I'm going to a wedding. It's a happy thing. Red is a happy color. I'll go. Uh, would you believe I was the only person wearing a red, basically a non-dark outfit, <laughs> especially for the formal part of the of the ceremony? Uh, all the uh, men were in either black suits or black hakamat, uh, and most of the women had either a dark uh, blue or or black outfit on. And so, and of course, the bride looked, you know, stunning, and she wore uh, several things. First, she had a kimono, a bright kimono on. Uh, which has some red in it traditionally, uh, and then she put on, I think, another kimono, and at the end she had an actual uh, Western uh, wedding gown on, and, and and so on and so forth. So, in other words, I, not thinking, was wearing the brightest outfit besides the bride at her wedding, which again would steal her thunder, right? And again, how could I not stand out anymore uh, as a foreign person? <laughs> but that didn't even enter my mind. So I think that was a misunderstanding. Again, there, no one said anything. There weren't any, you know, hard feelings or whatever it may be. But again, I really stuck out like a sort of fun and did not look like a person who even thought about how I would be perceived at this, at this event. Very important to my colleagues. Luckily, mm. because you already look different, I'm sure that they were able to cut you a little bit of extra slack. Yes. But I'm sure that impression also didn't fade. So it's better to avoid it, even if you are a foreigner, if you want a business relationship. Exactly. So if you were to talk to somebody who's going to Japan for business, mm -hmm. and they only knew one thing ahead of time, uh, mm -hmm, what would mm -hmm. you tell them? What would you want them to know before they landed if they were just showing up knowing one thing, but wanted to be successful in business in Japan. Right. That is, again, kind of a very low context question, right? Because what's yes. the one thing I can do? And there's, you know, a hundred things you can do, but I get it. I want to say, know that business equals relationships, at least in Japan, uh, but maybe even more important, and I have used this phrase a lot in my business seminars, in the U.S. we're taught that the customer is always right the customer is king, whatever have you. I try to really emphasize it to my students by saying, in Japan, the customer is God. 
okay? The customer is everything. The customer holds your future in their hands. So you have to embrace that, accept that, and, and treat them in that way. It is very hard, I think, for Americans to, to really fully comprehend. You know, we have the greeters at Walmart, and they're, you know, oh, welcome to the store, or they give you a little nod or a greeting when you come in or whatever have you. But in Japan, at least through the 80s and 90s, now you have it, you know, a little bit less because it is fantastic, but you'll have actual greeters who their whole job at a department store or wherever have you is to bow deeply to the customers when they come in and say, thank you for honorably uh, gracing our store with your presence is basically what, and that's their job. And any store that you go in, in Japan, they will say, you've honorably come to our, you know, Irashai must say, you have to say, you know, you honorably uh, grace our uh, place with your presence uh, in a very, very humble manner. And the customer, of course, is never wrong. Duh. And if, if, I think if it's very much ingrained in any uh, level of, of Japanese worker, you know, be they the, the you know, lowest man on the totem pole earning minimum wage at the 7-Eleven or some executive at a, a larger corporation, if the customer isn't happy and doesn't pay you, you have no job. You know, I think people kind of get that. Whereas in the U.S., it's a little more opaque, you know, oh, come on, it's a big company. We serve hundreds of people, millions of people, whatever it may be. You know, one of them's unhappy. Oh, well, not my problem. Um, in Japan, it's not seen that way. If you're going to make one person unhappy, they have friends, they have networks, they will talk about you. Your reputation will go down. That's a huge thing. When your reputation goes down, your face gets crushed, right? You lose face. and before you know it, you lose market share and you have lost business. So in any case, I think that is um, the one thing they should know is the customer is God. Take it seriously. Act like it. It's not about you. It is all about them, even if it's uncomfortable for you. And so uh, that's what I would advise. Thank you for that. It's fascinating how the more you learn about Japanese culture, the more it makes sense. Whereas if you only know a few things, it all just looks mm -hmm. kind of random. But it is all yes. internally coherent. It's all internally logical. So the more you learn, the more you can guess, the more you can figure things out as you go. So That's a great point. Mm -hmm. So if you only know one thing, know that, but also mm -hmm. try to learn more than just that one thing. Yes, absolutely. And so, and as you say, you know, here I am, I'm, I've been studying Japanese for, uh, language and culture for 35 plus years. I am still learning things. You know what I'm saying? Like I still uh, make mistakes. And so that's another uh, point is uh, unlike the fellow in the Joy Luck Club who wants to impress his, you know, girlfriend's parents or whatever by telling them he's great at using chopsticks or he's so knowledgeable or this and that, which is obviously not um, it's very important to be humble, to be able to admit mistakes and apologize sincerely. That is huge in Japan. Some Americans are unaware that in Japanese courts, if you apologize sincerely in the perception of the, the judge or the magistrate, you can be uh, excused. You can be let go. You know, you might have been charged with X, Y, or Z, but if you actually give a very uh, sincere, humble apology, that's enough. <laughs> and I laugh because for a low context person, it, that could never be enough, right? It, it doesn't even make sense. But, uh, but it is so important. So I think a lot of us, because again, we come from a litigious society, and I don't know if the U.S. is the most litigious in the world, but we have at least a thousand lawyers for every one lawyer in Japan. 
And so what we do in our low context culture, we make all those contracts, right? And if there's a breach of contract or a misunderstanding, we sometimes do arbitration, talk it out, so on and so forth. But we often like to sue each other. Well, I'll take you to court. I'll see you in court. Let's go to court. Let's have some you know, objective third party tell us you know, who did wrong and, and what you're going to do about it. Uh, instead of just working it out among ourselves. So we tend to think that everything has to be, um, how can I say, like kind of written down and, and worked out that way. Uh, whereas a high context culture, you know, we have this relationship. And if we have a misunderstanding, it's up to us to, to work that out. Um, and so I think when you do, you know, learn more about Japanese culture, great. But because you're not from that culture, you might make a mistake. Just the willingness to say, oh, I am very sorry, you know, I, I realize this put you in a difficult position or, or whatever it may be, and really try to put yourself in the other person's shoes uh, and humbly and sincerely apologize. I think that can really help too. Yeah, thank you for explaining that to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a perfect place to wrap up today's interview. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with my audience today. Thank you so much, Lydia. This was very enjoyable. I wish you best of luck and all your listeners to do well and learn more about Japanese culture and business. Yes, we'll do all do our best to keep learning. Great. All right, there we have it. I hope that you learned as much from our conversation today as I did. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to find the resources and suggested to continue learning more about the differences between high and low context cultures, as well as Japanese culture as a whole. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. So if you found the information here today useful, please subscribe for more Japanese language and cultural guidance. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to hear more content in the future, please consider leaving a review. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics, please email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com. Until next time, mata kondo!